Welcome to Connected Intelligence, a podcast about all the things we bring to work that aren't actually about the work. Join us in conversation about the building blocks that bring complex ideas to life. Not the code, calculations, or research, but the bonds between teammates, connection to your purpose, and the character that you build along the way. Welcome back, listeners. I'm your host, Sonia Senek. Today, we get a chance to reflect on the year that was 2023 with our incredible recurring guest, Professor Janice Stein. In this episode, we get Janice's view on key events from 2023, from global unrest to climate change, from technological advances in artificial intelligence to the Toronto Blue Jays. Janice is a legendary Canadian political scientist and an international relations expert. She is the Bellsberg Professor of Conflict Management in the Department of Political Science and the founding director of the Monk School of Global Affairs and Public Policy at the University of Toronto. Janice is a fellow of the Royal Society of Canada, a member of the Order of Ontario and the Order of Canada, among her many distinctions. Listeners, we'd like to thank each and every one of you for tuning into the podcast this year. 2023 has been quite a journey. So please grab a tea or a hot chocolate with marshmallows and enjoy our year in review with Professor Janice Stein. Janice, welcome back to the podcast. Thank you so much for joining us again. It's a pleasure to be back with you, Sonia. This is our year in review by Professor Janice Stein. So we're going to go through a bunch of stories from 2023 and would love to just get your insights on all of them. So we're going to do rapid fire exchanges. You got it. We got it. Okay, so let's start with Russia-Ukraine, which we spent some time on when we met last. What chapter are we in now, and how can we understand what might be next? We're probably in the middle of the story where the balance is now shifted. Ukraine is under a lot of stress, and Russia has actually been able to consolidate its gains to reorganize and to ramp up the pressure on Ukraine. Uh, I think we're only in the middle, not in the last set of chapters. People, I think right now, are overly pessimistic about Ukraine. Just as last year, they were overly optimistic. I think next year, we will still be talking about the slog of that battle, the huge number of military casualties that the war will continue to take. And it really will be a test of the staying power of NATO to support Ukraine once the original euphoria of the Ukrainian resistance has gone. And is the change in sentiment from last year being, as you said, overly optimistic to this year being overly pessimistic, is that change due to simply the amount of time and attrition through this process? No, I think that. Overly optimistic means that we are unrealistic about what the Ukrainian army could achieve on the battlefield. Overly pessimistic means that we are unrealistic uh, about what the Russian army can achieve. I don't think either set of assessments is grounded in an understanding of the battlefield. And that's why I don't see an end yet. Neither side is prepared to compromise and neither side can prevail on the battlefield in these next 12 months. Shifting to another conflict, the Middle East conflict, you've been asked for comment on countless radio shows, TV shows, and podcasts. Where are we now and how can Canadians best understand the situation at hand? 
This has been absolutely brutal war initiated by Hamas. It's a, it is the latest chapter in a long struggle. It didn't start on October the 7th, but the attack that Hamas launched on October 7th was really of unprecedented brutality. It was designed to shock, to horrify, to enrage, and it did all of that to Israel's population. It was also designed to send a message that the status quo was not stable and to put the Palestinian issue and the future of Palestine centrally back on the agenda. It did that as well. As we speak, the war is still ongoing. This is There is not going to be a neat end to this war either. Uh, I think people are overly optimistic about thinking there will be a break in which we will move from fire to ceasefire. It won't look like that. This is a very messy battlefield with terrible civilian casualties by far the worst that we've seen in this century, and with no clear path forward to a governance structure in Gaza the day after. Even that phrase, which is so much part of public conversation, the day after, is too neat, too organized, too structured uh, to capture what we're going to see next year. We will be having the same conversation next year. And on the topic of global issues, of course, COVID-19, we are seeing another wave now. The staying global economic impact of the pandemic, we're still seeing inflation at a, a significant high. What is in store for 2024 and why are groceries so expensive still? That's a larger question about is inflation here to stay for a while? Certainly central bankers are telling us no. Inflation will come down. Jerome Powell in the United States, Tiff Macklin in Canada, still expect inflation to be within the broad target range of 2 to 3%, which is becoming an acceptable rate. And they may be right in terms of the impact of high interest rates on suppressing demand, which is the way things worked in the past. That's how you got inflation now. And this is still the tried and true measure to do this. But there are structural factors which are driving inflation. You talked about COVID. Uh, The reason COVID was inflationary is people stayed home (laughs) and productivity. The argument during COVID was productivity did not fall. I never really bought that argument. And the data are now coming out that, in fact, of course, it fell in certain sectors. That's entirely expectable. But beyond that, what COVID did was disrupt global supply chains. But COVID had a transitory effect on inflation. I don't think it it was powerful, but transitory. What's really driving inflation are longer-term structural factors. Aging populations, declining workforce, shrinking labor market. When you have shrinking labor markets, prices go up. And the de-globalization that is occurring as a result of deepening conflict between China and the United States. When we de-risk and we secure supply chains, 
there's a cost to that. If you want masks made in North America, not in Shandong, you're just going to pay more to manufacture masks because labor costs are more expensive here. So until the robotics revolution is fully in place, when they, when we have robots driven by AI and we don't need large workforces, that's when in the, the structural forces that are driving inflation will come down. So I actually think those artificially low interest rates, which not of COVID, that wasn't the driver. It was the global financial crisis where governments began to experiment with quantitative easing and never able, were really able to pull back from it until inflation became what it is today, the biggest source of discontent with governments. Um, that created the space to do something about it. Um, but I think inflation will stay higher for the rest of this decade. And Janice, you mentioned the deglobalization that's happening. I, I hate that word, really, Sonia, because it's way too extreme. Right. Global trade is growing. Yes, global trade has dropped somewhat as a proportion of global GNP. It's not so much that we are deglobalizing. We are restructuring global supply chains. That's really what's happening. And that's what's adding the costs. Also putting that pressure on the labor markets. You're mentioning a shrinking labor markets, yeah. not just because of the aging workforce, but when you have that restructuring, then you have the labor markets also shrinking. Yes and no, right? So think about it. If you, let's take the COVID example. If you want masks and rapid antigen tests that are made in North America so that you have quick access when you need them and you're not dependent on the Chinese market, you're going to create jobs, but you're just using relatively much more expensive labor to make things that were made much more cheaply in China. And that's structural inflation. So every time we hear our finance minister and Janet Yellen talk about de-risking, let's just say higher prices in our heads and we'll mm-hmm. understand and you mentioned a future where robots may be able to do yeah. the work that a human's able to do. Yeah. We're already seeing that. We already, there's a lot of kind of, there's a sci-fi quality to that. But in any factory, in any high precision factory or advanced factory, go in and you see the robotic arms um, that are increasingly doing a lot, even of high precision work. Now, there's still humans. <laughs> on the factory floor that are watching um, and part of the process, but they're already diminishing the need for workers. So a complimentary conversation that sometimes comes up when we talk about the robot revolution is universal basic income. There's been a few pilots rolled out in some states like Alabama or Florida. Can you speak a little bit to what they're looking to see from these pilots and what role you think UBI will have in the future? Yeah. So there was actually a pilot in Ontario, former Premier Kathleen Windstart, and then was shut down before we got the data. How frustrating is that? 
before we got the results by Premier Ford when he became Premier. So what are we looking to find out when we run these pilots? First of all, how effective is basic income in keeping people above the poverty line? Because if, in fact, income supplements are not either not adequate or badly used by the people who get them, and there's always that story out there, even though there's not a lot of evidence for it, um, then the program will fail, right? So is it effective in keeping people above the poverty line? The other end of the spectrum, the other thing we need to find out, and again, we hear these stories, these are political stories told by people at different points on the political spectrum. Well, giving people basic income is going to diminish their incentive to work. And you don't want to do that. That's an argument economists use all the time. So how you structure the program, when people do, it's very much like the old arguments about welfare. If people collect welfare, then they have no incentive to work. That is a canard, frankly. (laughs) The evidence doesn't support that. But there were very rigid incentives built into welfare programs. For example, as soon as you get a job, you had to give up all your welfare payments. So if you got a low-paying job, you lost by working rather than continuing to collect welfare. So rational people under those kinds of circumstances continued to collect welfare and didn't look for jobs. What are the price points of a basic annual income which doesn't build in perverse incentives into the program? Why do people care about a basic income program right now? Because there is a recognition that as AI diffuses, the, the term AI, I think you would agree, Sonia, is misleading. There are millions of AIs that are already deployed in the workplace and will continue to deploy much more quickly over these next five years. As they're used in the workplace, they will diminish the need for workers. There's no question. And not only factory workers, but white-collar workers and writers and speechwriters and editors. So the whole chattering class is stands in front of this future, frankly. But it is to deal with a society which over time needs fewer and fewer workers. And thinking about work as something you do along with other things in your life is, I think, where we're heading. So UBI is an important concept, but it has to work and we have to test it. And of course, coming into 2024, we have a U.S. election. Yes. And we also have a recent poll from Economics or YouGov reported 42% of Americans think a civil war is likely within the next 10 years. How pivotal is this 2024 election in making either one of those realities come true? An enormous year in U.S. politics is probably the most important event of 2024 will be the U.S. presidential election in November because the United States is so important to the global economy, so important to global security. So what happens in the United States never stays inside the United States. It affects everybody and no country more, by the way, than Canada, obviously, since our economy is so intertwined with that of the United States. 
and three quarters of our exports still go to the United States. Donald Trump, to the surprise of many, is the front runner in that election. I don't only mean the nomination, which unless something extraordinary happens in the first two primaries in Iowa, in the caucus in Iowa, and then in New Hampshire, unless Nikki Haley wins both, frankly, he is most likely the nominee. But the current polls, and it's very early, election campaigns matter and events matter. So I think we have to be very careful about extrapolating. But if the election were held today, Trump would win because the polls don't tell you the full story. The full story here is that Trump is leading in all eight of the swing states, which are so important in the United States for the Electoral College. So he would clearly win if it were held today. So we don't have to worry that he will defy the election results because he's he would win fair and square, frankly, based on the polls that we're seeing. So that is that is a that's a concern to NATO. It would make Vladimir Putin happy. It unclear how Xi Jinping, there's certainly there was a good relationship between Trump and Xi Jinping, but Trump did start the tariff war, which Biden has built on, and also was the first one to really talk and do something about restructuring supply chains. So there's no issue. There's no issue. There's no, if you think about the Russia-Ukraine war, if you think about the war between Israel and Hamas, if you think about North Korea, if you think about what's happening in Sudan, there's no issue in the world that will not be affected. There is a significant difference between the Biden team and the Trump team, not to even talk at all about what the impact would be on U.S. domestic politics, on immigration policy, on the relationship of the United States with Mexico. Um, All of these would be upended again by a Trump victory. And the larger question is, would allies take a chance ever again if after four years of Trump, the American electorate, could we elect him knowing what they now know about him? How much should U.S. allies invest in the United States as the guarantor of their security? So everything is on the table in that election. So the recent news this week about the Colorado Supreme Court removing Trump from the ballot, is that a material piece of news? Well, first of all, let's understand it's only from Colorado. It has no implication for any other state. Secondly, it's in many ways a challenging ruling because they are basing it on the fact that Donald Trump committed insurrection on January the 6th. There's, there are trials which have not yet gotten underway about those allegations. Standing back from people's political preferences here is very rare, if we think about it, it's very rare to bar somebody from access to participating in an event when they've been charged but not convicted. 
And that's fundamentally the situation we're in. And that's why people are hesitant. Even liberals are very concerned about a court. If we take that into our own lives, just imagine if a private citizen were barred um, from voting because they were charged but not convicted. People would really worry about that. And that's why this is going to go to the Supreme Court for sure. But people that would norm, who are very anti-Trump and very worried about his presidency are still worried about a legal precedent of this kind. And just to stay on the global scale, we must talk about climate change. We chatted about it last year. Yeah. So where are we now and what happened at COP28? So where we are now is it is overwhelmingly likely that we will... Look the planet will warm to two degrees. I think we have left the 1.5 target behind us. That is no longer attainable. Uh, And now we're talking about somewhere between two and three degrees by the end of the century, which would transform the earth as we know it and would make big chunks of it uninhabitable. So there is really the sense that time is running out. COP, 28, like all previous conferences, is the agreements tend to be voluntary because it's too difficult to get to binding agreements. So the the conference in Paris, which produced the commitments to targets, was voluntary. And we have voluntary commitments to things that are really hard to do. And it's there's always slippage, right? And this is hard to do. One of the criticisms I often make of our leaders is that they do not tell publics it is going to be expensive to go through the energy transition. And the question is really, what are you willing to give up in order to slow down global warming? Because we, we're already close to 1.5, if not added, depending on what evidence you look at. So this is a voluntary agreement to give up fossil fuels entirely by 2050. That's a short time from now, frankly. That's much shorter than most people think we can do it. The commitments are voluntary. And again, can you imagine a Canadian prime minister coming to the Canadian public and saying, okay, we're going to shut down fossil fuels, which really means Alberta, and there's a few other places, but fundamentally we're going to shut it down. And that's going to cost each one of you 5% of your income. Are you willing to pay for that? That's what it really comes down to. And, And you get the most surprising answers. I was at a national conference on housing. Now, one of the things that makes housing a chosen vehicle for investment and savings for Canadians way beyond other countries. Yes, everyone needs a place to live, but many countries have a higher proportion of renters than we do. One of the things that makes it so attractive is we get a capital gains exemption on our house. As people were bemoaning the lack of affordable housing in this country, I said, okay, let's wait a minute. How many people in this room, there were about 500, would give up the capital gains exemption on their house? I won't tell you how few people put up their hands. (laughs) But it's a trade-off. There are trade-offs. These are hard. 
and leaders are not honest with their publics. In discussing the other side of the coin. Yeah, that this is going to cost you something. How much are you willing to pay? How much are you willing to lower your standard of living? In Our leaders do the opposite. They tell us we can have it all. We can't go through the energy transition and not pay a price with a lower standard of living in order to do it. So the question is, how much are you willing to pay? And are you willing to make the sacrifice? That's really what it is. I think if we asked people, we would be in a better position than these fantasy conversations. And then the predictable outrage that people experience when things cost more because we're doing this. Because we're not expectation setting properly. That's right. What role, Janice, do you see policymakers having in making sure that the fulsome conversation is had publicly? I think that's what leadership is about. It's about being honest, not in a sense of not misappropriating funds. (laughs) That's a very low bar. Uh, It's about being honest. And yes, sometimes that's very hard to do because you don't get elected or you don't get reelected. But uh, that, I think, is a big reason why we have an erosion of trust, which we do in our democratic societies. Because leaders don't level with publics, and that's when people come to distrust. We know this from COVID. If we want any proof, if we think back to the early days of COVID, where we had public health officials say, masks don't work. (laughs) They knew better. If you don't get past week one, right? That's the reason doctors and nurses wear masks when they're in surgical units or around patients. How effective they are, that's an argument, but they to say they don't work, but why did they say they don't work? Because it was a shortage. They didn't want to run on the supplies, which they were trying to save for desperate teams in emergency rooms. Tell the public that. Say, so yeah, masks do work but we don't have enough for the people that are jamming in now to emergency rooms. So go home and make a mask. Yeah. I wonder what innovations would have come from that story being the lead. And if you're side of a piece of cloth you have at home, let's have a national competition for the best homemade mask. It doesn't matter. But the price that was paid afterwards, because once it, it became obvious why, those comments were made, people began to distrust public health officials and that trust has never been regained. So were we to have a pandemic now in Canada, we would be far worse off than we were in 2020 when it started. And distrust of public health officials is also another way of saying distrust of science, right? They're there to give a scientific opinion. And the, but they didn't, right? And that's the first part. Of it. And then the second part of it is really that we don't establish learning cultures, right? So some of the things, much about COVID, we didn't know at the beginning. And so I just learned. But instead of saying, here's what we know now, I'll be back to you in six weeks. And if I'm not back with some new stuff, I'll be very disappointed because my research team <laughs> is not making the progress that I'm praying they make. 
right? So we need to give up fossil fuels by 2050 if we're going to prevent the world from overheating. How much is that going to cost? I don't know yet because we haven't done the costing, but I'll be back to you. What can we do about storage of wind power, frankly? How are we going to make electricity more affordable? And how, by the way, does that fit with AI, which is consuming vast amounts of electricity because of the heavy demand for compute, right? Who's talking about that? And if we're doing this work, we will tell you. We don't know the answer now, but we'll tell you. For leaders to be honest and say, we're learners. That's an entirely different conversation. Hard to think of a prime minister in a democratic world or a president who speaks that way. I think we underestimate the public. Do they feel constrained in not providing the fulsome conversation because it'll cost them yeah, because they don't want to, they, it's a fundamental misunderstanding, I think, of what authority is based on. Authority is not based on the sense that you give people that you know everything. Always having the answers. It's actually authority is based on trust. That if you don't have the answer, you're going to go do your best to look for it. And we learn that in the classroom as teachers. I can't tell you the number of times students ask me a question. I don't know the answer. (laughs) That's okay. I tell them, I don't know. I'm going to go. I'm going to go read about this or do some research. And I'll be back to you in a couple of weeks with the answer. Whatever that does, first of all, it makes me human. And second of all, when I do, when somebody else asks me a question, I'll say, oh, here's the answer to this. Of course, people believe it because I'm comfortable enough in public saying, I don't know the answer, right? Or we don't have good evidence. We have rumors. That's all we have. So maybe the young, maybe the 35s and under when they become political leaders will fix this for us. (laughs) I'm hopeful. Pulling on the thread of technology, the White House issued an executive order on artificial intelligence. Right. It's first executive order on artificial yes. intelligence. Yes. How do you make sense of what they're trying to achieve with this? So I think we have a very confused picture on regulation. First of all, it's confused because we use one word AI, which is so misleading, right? If you think about it, just imagine we were trying to regulate human intelligence. It would be prosperous. I think we can have <laughs> one policy to regulate human intelligence. How could we have one regulate one regulatory framework? Because so there's it's confused because it doesn't focus on I think two things that are really important in this discussion. Three. There's three elements that we're going to have to figure out. One is we have to understand what products we're trying to regulate. We're not trying to regulate AI. We're trying to regulate products. And once you understand that, you realize how complex, how huge, and how diverse. So every agency in government is going to have a capacity to regulate products that have AI built into them. Number one, it's it's not. So the executive order fails on that one, really. The second big issue is, okay, this is so complex 
that we'll never get there with a regulatory framework of the kind I've just talked about. Let's shift transparency. So let's have a national registry, for example, which in which everybody who's building a large language model in the country registers their model and does two things, makes clear what the algorithm is, even though the designers of large language models, as you know well, Sonia, don't actually understand themselves right now. They will, know, but they don't now understand fully how their own models are producing the outcomes that they are. It's called a black box. It's not clear to me what the big advantage would be of registration, because the third piece of that is transparency. Be transparent so other people can look at your algorithm and understand what it's doing. The problem with that one, as I said, is that the developers don't understand, so nobody else is going to understand. But beyond that, there's no commercial enterprise in AI that is going to put its algorithm in a registry and make it fully transparent. Because there goes their competitive advantage. There goes their competitive advantage. So I'm actually, I'm almost amused by the discussion about AI and why are we having the kind of discussion about regulation that we are? I think because frankly, it's being led by companies. So that executive order came out of meetings that the White House had with the big, the open AIs, the Microsofts, the the, the X's and the Teslas and the Facebooks who, yeah, want to get an, out in front of the discussion of regulation because they know it's coming because they recognize the dangers of some of what their algorithms are doing, but they, they, see to, they want to control the agenda. So we're going to have to move now to a very different place with respect to regulation than where we've been. Final comment is there's no product or industry where regulation is led. It always lags. We just have to accept that, right? Sometimes it lags by years and for good reason, because regulators have to be careful that the regulations they pass don't do harm as well as good. Uh, so if you think about drug regulation, always lags, always lags. And it lags in health, it's going to lag in AI for sure, even more. In drug regulation, one of the key things that happens is harms are publicized. So yeah. if you're doing a trial, you're made aware of when it worked and when it didn't work. And right. how badly did it go when it didn't work? No, that's not true. That's not true. And we know that because it, it's less of a problem maybe now than it was even a few years ago. But how do we know that's not true is because we know that from the antidepressant from trials on antidepressant drugs. So what gets published are the drugs that seem to have a significant effect beyond the placebo effect. But all the trials that failed never get published. So we get a very skewed database. Do you trials. think that for assessing AI as we go through this next phase, this next chapter, as it's so much more prevalent, would publicizing harms be yeah. useful? It has to be about, regulation has to be about avoiding harms with AI, right? So if it's in social media, if it's 
ranging from everything to disinformation to deep fakes to hate speech. These are harms that are done. That has to be the focus of regulation. It has to be. Last question on this, Janice. The White House executive order on AI included a chief AI officer yeah. in every department. Yeah. What will that person be doing? I actually think that's, that was the best. That was the all, really smart regular piece in the whole executive, in, in the whole structure of that executive order. Because if you believe, as I do, that AI is part of everything already, and will be more, whether you're in fisheries and oceans, or you're in cyber, or you're in health, it doesn't matter. Or you're in, in public works, or you're in social policy, AI is going to be there. As first as an augmenter of human decision-making on these policy issues, but pretty quickly it's going to take over. Uh, some of them, especially the more routine ones. And it's going to take different forms in different departments. So you want an AI officer down a level or two or three or four of abstraction with their feet on the ground with granular knowledge of how our AIs, and another way of putting this question, which decisions in my department are being automated? Mm-hmm. Which project, which products that we are pushing out to the public? To give you a concrete example, we have a nightmare time in this country getting passports. I don't even want to go into the why, right? But there is an alternative way to do this. So we have a digital platform in which we upload documents. And we don't have to upload much. We have to send in our old passports and a birth certificate, right? And, and that platform is capable of verifying. And with there's a whole bunch of technology now, which would make it quite easy because other countries do it this way. Mm-hmm. So this problem's already been solved and you get your passport in 24 hours that way. And it's returned to you with a watermark and you can only print it once. And these are, this is not rocket science, <laughs> but for somebody in the passport office, you need an AI officer to understand, right? So what that technology is doing, um, are there any unanticipated harms? Are we hearing from people about harms? Um, do we have, what's the record of fraud with AI-generated passports? And you don't want the person in Transport Canada covering passports because <laughs> it's going to play out entirely differently when they're self-driving trucks. That's mm-hmm. really important. So that was the, by far the smartest provisions of that executive order. And last question, the tech aspect of 2023, we've seen significant advancements in quantum computing. There's many different stories out there about the progress of quantum around the world. Right. Where are we now, Janice? So let me tell you where I think we are, uh, which is we don't know where we are. Okay, that's the first thing. We really don't know where we are. And there's a lot of speculation and you and I can engage in it, but we're not, but, but we're not good at that until we get better evidence. But let me tell you where I think quantum computing is really important as a metaphor, right? Because we measure the number of qubits. We know something about where we are because we measure the number of qubits. And qubits are different from zeros and ones. Let me put it that way. So here's the metaphor for, I think, we need to go in the world. And it would be very helpful if we could do it. A zero and a one is either or. 
you're a zero or you're a one, but you're not both at the same time, right? What's messed up in our societies and our politics is we are forcing people into binary choices. The great advantage that the Cuban world has for us in understanding the world, we're both at the same time, and it depends where we're positioned and our positions move. If we can understand that about our politics and about our society, we would be a lot healthier in our societies and our politics. So I actually think we need to start teaching young students about Cubits and saying, keep two, three contradictory ideas in your head at the same time. Understand that as you move, you're going to see the world a little differently if you're standing way over there or over here, and you might not even be the same. It's a powerful metaphor against the narrow kind of identity politics, which frankly, in terms of harm to our society, I believe is causing untold harm. Let's teach Schrodinger's cat in grade one. That's right. right. So final question, probably the most important, Janice. Your beloved Blue Jays start the 2024 season on March 28th without Otani. Yeah, that was a moment of sheer joy for anybody who lives in Toronto or even in Canada. There was a tweet that went out about a plane coming from California to Toronto and people tracked that flight all day believing that Otani was on it. And then there was a fake, deep fake video of Otani getting off at Pearson Airport. And everybody just thought this was the best day of 2024. And then, of course, it wasn't true. (laughs) And the person who tweeted up apologized, but then a kind of Canadian conversation ensued, which was really sad. Why would we think that a superstar like would ever come? <laughs> I thought that was so dispiriting. And I, I said, why wouldn't they come? This is a wonderful place to be, <laughs> especially in a pre-Trump United States. They should be happy and excited to come to Toronto. And the difference in the offer was not great money, ultimately, because the Blue Jays were prepared to mortgage their whole future. (laughs) So the wonderful thing about baseball is there's always next year. (laughs) So predictions for 2024 then, Janice? Oh, we're going to be fabulous. Janice, thank you so much for your time. This was amazing. You're so welcome and wishing everybody great holidays and a much better 2024, a more peaceful 2024, a less violent 2024. Uh, And let's free ourselves up to hold two or three contradictory ideas in our head at the same time.